listening to GCTC's podcast, In Conversation. My name is Sarah Kitts. I'm the Artistic Director at GCTC, and I am joined today by Mary Beth Badian, whose hit play, The Waltz, is currently on our stage all the way from Factory Theatre in Toronto. Mary Beth is a Filipino-Canadian writer, playwright, theatre maker, performer, teaching artist, and style icon. (laughs) At least to me one parent artist to another. Uh, she's always remarkably well put together. Welcome, Mary Beth. I'm embarrassed. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So glad to have you here. I'm really thrilled to be here. And so glad to have your show on our stage. And so I'm wondering if to begin for our audience mm. who maybe haven't seen any of your work before, mm-hmm. could you just give us an overview of your career to date, how you started in theater, oh my how you got to here now? I encourage you to brag about yourself oh. <laughs> and your accomplishments. Oh, uh, uh, um, no wrong answers. Uh, well, I... Uh, started in theater um, as an actor. I went to TMU before, long before it was TMU. Um, after having dropped out of the journalism program, mm. I had take, also at also at TMU, which was Ryerson. Yes, previously. at the time, and I'd taken the journalism program because I thought that that was acceptable to my parents Mm. at the time that it had maybe a feasible career there's no way as much as I loved doing um, theater in high school um, I couldn't imagine a world where my parents would have supported me Um, and then I was out on my own after dropping out I moved downtown with my brother as my roommate and then um, decided to be like well I can make this choice for myself and Risk it, and I remember telling my dad I was gonna um, just like I got into this theater program, mm-hmm. and he had told me, "Well, you know, if you took computers, <laughs> you you could work at Disney World with those animatronics, <laughs> and that's kind of like theater." That's an interesting connection, Dad. It's so strange, and I just—it was just another one of those moments that I was like, "You don't know me," and one day I'll write a play about this. Um, So, you know, fast forward, graduating from that program, it was second last of the diploma program. Mm. Um, And then going out into, quote unquote, the real world, I think my frustration was, as so many of us here feel underrepresented, um, that I either wasn't getting um, an opportunity to be the dreamy characters that I thought I could be, like... In my brain, I thought I could be Anne of Green Gables and yeah. and Lizzie Bennet, but mm. it wasn't happening. And um, I decided to take a gamble on the Fringe Festival. And uh, I had been in it with a collective of friends um, the year I graduated from university. And then the next year, I put it myself in and thought, if the universe says you you're in the lottery, you're going to write a solo show. And I did. And I think that, like, looking back, that really began um, what I think has become an excavation of emotionally autobiographical work. Mm -hmm. And that one was probably certainly the most autobiographical, as I think a lot of us first-timers will do. Um, That play was called Novena. And then that 
somehow led me into a trajectory of two really formative parts of my career, which was um, the former artistic director of Theatre Direct Canada, Linda Hill, um, had had heard about the success of that show and I auditioned for her and uh, ended up doing a tour that really um, ignited my love of theatre for young audiences. Yes. Like really ignited the immediacy of it. It ignited, I found a place where all the things, the possibilities that I believed I could be as a, a Filipino-Canadian cis woman, I could be a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. I could, like, and I could, and I could be in a, in a performance where 600 audience members are invested and believe in you. And they're like, yeah, you're a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk to you like you're a 12-year-old. Like that, that kind of um, liberation of imagination was really formative for me. And then also, um, I was on, a, on an OAC jury, a project jury, with Eric Coates. And mm-hmm. it was his first year as artistic director of the Blythe Festival. I didn't know him. And we fought about everything. <laughs> and then a couple of weeks later, he called me and he was like, do you want to come up to the Blythe Festival and see what we do here? Um, and that began, oh my gosh, like, I, I think it's now been a t- more than 20-year relationship with the Blythe Festival. Yeah. And that has been, that plus theatre for young audiences really ignited um, a sense of service to audience mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Like a, a real clarity of who are the people you are creating art for. And it's it's not, it was no longer driven by um, an artistic desire to express singularly for the sake of expressing but really that that's going to land yeah and who is it landing on and why and is it specific mm-hmm. um and eric was such a um um th- the consideration that he put in that very long-term mentorship yeah. from directing from I went from being a guest artist to the young company to taking over the young company for two years to assistant directing and being in a show and then being commissioned and then directing a show and then my work premiering there. Mm-hmm. That was over the course of 10 years. Yeah. And over the course of 10 years, I was embedded every summer in that audience. Mm-hmm. I stayed with who I call my fairy godparents <laughs> who are patrons of that theater I would see, I would just walk up to the theater at any time and like, I would see shows four or five times in a row with audience who recognized themselves on stage. Yeah. And um, when Eric commissioned me, I brought him a play and and I said, Eric, this is a terrible play and this is not for the Blythe audience, but I think I have one. Will you give me the time to think, like to see it through? Mm Mm-hmm. And it was Prairie Nurse. Mm. And the 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 only um, thing I knew at the time, so I think that was probably around 2005 or 2006, I was like, my mother has a rural story. She came from rural Philippines to rural Saskatchewan in 1969. 
I think there's something in there. And um, in 2007, I took my mom back to Saskatchewan. She hadn't been back for 40 years. My goodness. And all the stories that were theoretical in Toronto became alive in Saskatchewan. And we went from Saskatoon to Prince Albert to Tisdale mm. to Arborfield to Nipawin to Regina, just following the path of anyone who may have known her at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was a slog. Like, I didn't know who we were going to encounter, who I would meet, if anyone remembered Mom. But um, on the advice of David Craig, um, he said, write to the local papers, Mm -hmm. put in a a letter to the editor, and see if something catches. Hmm. I did. And out of the ether, this person emailed me and said, hi, my name is Patricia Hackett. I knew your mom. I was the candy striper at the hospital. I know everyone. (laughs) They're still alive. The hospital still exists. A family in Arborfield bought it and turned it into their house. And so incredible. We go, we go. They turned the nurses' residence into their house, and the hospital into their garage. It was nuts. <laughs> this rural hospital. We walk in. In the reception area are like um, onions hanging from the ceiling. A skidoo in the corner. We go into the examination room. They'd bulldoze the examination room and put a boat in there. My God. And then we walk into the staff room, and my mother just is awash with stories I've never heard before. Mm. And on that trip, meeting all the people who were still alive, including the other nurse who was stationed with her, the head nurse, the um, the caretaker who, who basically did everything, the thing that became apparent was they kept seeing my mom and saying, where's the other one? Mm. Like, who's the other one? And mom was like, I knew she was... I knew she nursed with another nurse there, but she never spoke fondly of her. Mm. And they said, Penny, who's the other one, is in Saskatoon. And I found her, and we met her at the airport lounge before we were going to fly out. And she looked just like my mom. Hmm. Short, four years out of retirement, two years freshly divorced from the man she risked everything to come to Canada for, wow. and that was the story. Hmm. All of a sudden, I had a mistaken identity story, hmm. and that that began Prairie Nurse at the Blythe Festival. It premiered in 2013, um, and then um, as it, in Canadian theater, I didn't expect it to have another life. Mm-hmm for a long time. And then in 2018, for some reason, some beautiful reason, it got four productions in 2018 yeah. um, across Canada. And around that time, in preparation for those productions, a lot of the media rhetoric was, this is an immigration story, and I felt really... Hmm cagey about that yeah and where I was in my life at that time too I my kid was um I think five or six years old and I was really kind of in this um, 
very strange place where people would kind of exotify my biracial child. Mm. I was also in this place where I was like, no, this isn't an immigration story. It doesn't end here. And I told Gil at the Blythe Festival, I think I have a sequel. Hmm. I actually think I have two. I just don't know which is going to show up first. Um, and what showed up first was the waltz. And the waltz was because, honestly, I just wanted to see two kids fall in love. Mm-hmm. Because I'd been seeing so many stories of brownness and BIPOC and otherness being trauma stories yeah and they exist they are absolutely part of the fabric of my identity mm-hmm. but that is not our singular story mm-hmm. and I'm a Gen Xer I grew up on f- love stories mm-hmm. um, loves I didn't have the um, joy of watching what is our mass media now of seeing different bodies and identities falling in love. Mm -hmm. So I had to make it. Mm -hmm. And that was really satisfying, and that's the waltz. Um, And the cottage guest has always been in my brain since 2015, and then it changed drastically in 2019, and I didn't know if I could write it. I, I remember calling Gil saying, I don't think I can write this play. I don't think I'll ever be able to write this play. And then after the waltz premiered, and I had some distance, um, I think I needed to see the waltz. And the good news is I finished The Cottage Guest, it's done. Ah. Yeah. That's so exciting. I've, I finished it in Banff last month. Congratulations. Thank you. So the trilogy is done. It's done. Well, one of my questions for you was going to be, and you've answered it now, did you know from the beginning that Prairie Nurse was part of a trilogy, or did that happen over the course of writing it? And it sounds like that is what happened. Yeah, it wasn't even over the course of writing it. The trilogy was emergent. In the performance of Prairie Nurse. That's so fascinating. Yeah, in the performance and the response to Prairie Nurse. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Because like it re this idea that like I don't I I see it as I see Prairie Nurse as a comedy I see it as a um, a Canadiana mm-hmm. as like my response to what like a, a broader tapestry of what it means to be Canadian yes and yes immigration is part of it this arrival of these two nurses from the Philippines in the end of the 60s at the beginning of Medicare a hundred percent that is part of it mm-hmm. but what is the full story of our presence here is not going to happen in one play mm-hmm. and when I think of my own family what a tragedy to leave it at that, to go, you know, my mom is a hero. Yeah. She's a pioneer. She came, not unlike what we're experiencing now, in a crisis of healthcare. Mm-hmm. She came and risked everything. There was no internet. She didn't know what Canada was. Yeah. She didn't know what Canada was until she arrived at the airport in Manila, and they showed her this Canadian 
Canadian Film Board film. She thought she was going to a place called North Battleford. She arrived in Saskatoon and they were like, just joking. Oh my gosh. You're going to Prince Albert. But that's just one chapter. Mm-hmm. The continuing chapters are the waves of immigration and roots mm-hmm. and stories of how we become Canadian. Mm-hmm. And my story of me becoming Canadian is vastly different from anyone who, say, immigrated in 1975 or immigrated last year or immigrated in the 80s. So more and more I feel a calling in this cycle that I've created to own up to the specificity of the this particular immigration story that begins in 1969 and with the cottage guests ends in 2017. Mm-hmm. That's 50 years. And I, I just want to sort of hold these pieces up against each other. Um, when you were talking about the deep and durational investment that the Blythe Festival has given you over 20 years, mm-hmm. first with Eric Coates and then later with Gil Garrett, to develop your work mm-hmm. as an artist and for your work to become legible and familiar to an audience population, and then for that work to have a life outside of that festival across yeah. the country is such a remarkable I want to say gift because that kind of investment is, I think, what is required to build a Canadian artist. You know, one investment on one show does not make a career. We all know that. We don't talk about it very much, but we all know that. And and similarly, when I when I look at this work that you've made specifically in this Prairie trilogy of. Prairie Nurse, The Waltz, and The Cottage Guest, I see you working very much in this lineage uh, that, you know, easily references David French's work, Mm -hmm. which you mentioned, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and his Mercer family cycle, which is about the Mercer family, this family who transplant from Newfoundland to Toronto. And, you know, that kind of work is at the center of, you know, Canadiana in, in a traditional white canon sense and I love the way I see you I think consciously uh, taking that work and taking up the mantle of that work for a new generation and saying these are also the stories of Canada and they are absolutely as you've said specific Uh, and the thing that I wanted to hold up against the depth of for instance, the Blythe Festival's investment in you is your investment in the longevity of the Alvarez family yeah. and what you give to us as an audience in terms of the depth and scope of their stories mm-hmm. is a remarkable gift to the Canadian theatre-going audience. I'm going to cry. Because there, I feel like working in that scope is not something that all playwrights do for any number of reasons. Perhaps it's not you know, a desire of every writer. Um, 
But to be able to live so deeply in the stories of central family members and then peripheral characters as well who expand their worlds is something that uh, we are, I think, the Canadian theatre-going public is more familiar with from a previous generation of work. Mm. And so to see you doing that in your work now feels like... um, not an inevitable evolution because of the amount of investment it requires, but such a beautiful and necessary contribution to the tapestry of Canadian storytelling right. and to our our collective ability to imagine in a contemporary way what Canada is, who Canada is, what Canadian stories are yeah. and who they're for and who they're about. Yeah. We're a young country. Yeah. Um, I have to, it's like one of the most, when I was doing research for Prairie Nurse, I still didn't know what it was. I came here to Ottawa <laughs> and was at the form, I, I think they changed the name, the Museum of Civilization. Yeah. Um, but they had this like exhibit, the Great Hall, where you walk through the history of Canada. And it just felt like Disney World. But at the end, there was a small room. It was probably less than 500 square feet. Mm-hmm. And it was made to look like the Vancouver airport in the late 60s. Oh. And the entire exhibit was about Filipino medical professionals came to Canada at the end of the 60s and in the archive like what they were exhibiting was like my house yeah (laughs) like the things that were in my home like the straw bags that my mother brought back for a trip it was but like like that was a there was a I was in tears yeah it's like my mom is here Mm. in this room and this National Museum has dedicated this space to see the, the contribution mm-hmm. of, of this population in Canada. And that, in our short history of this nation, is essential. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not... A, like the joke is that I went to journalism school. That's the joke. Because I am not a documentarian. Mm-hmm. But I am... In, an, in effect, talking about our history in a theatrical way that I hope, you know, when people, for example, see Prairie Nurse, they will know the reason why any time they go to the hospital or a doctor's office, 80% of the staff is Filipino. Yeah. That's why they will know that. Yeah. Or now, like with the Waltz, it it was the specificity of stuff in the waltz so important to me because it's like, yeah, it's a '90s piece, mm-hmm. but my '90s subculture in my little corner of suburban Scarborough mm-hmm. was not the grunge mass culture of the early '90s. Yeah. Mine was house music, R and B, dressing up, mm-hmm. wide leg pants super stylish when you weren't wearing your uniform, Mm -hmm. Um, really invested in family, fam jams, everybody's Filipino, the mall, Scarborough Town Center, Foot Locker, (laughs) The Gap, Eddie Bauer. That 
is a subculture that is recognizable, but people don't see it because we don't put it on stage. That, and it's so satisfying Mm -hmm. to know I've written this play and to watch an audience echo with recognition. Like a mixed audience. I love that. See Nirvana in her and see boys to men men. in him. Mm -hmm. I was not a part of that subculture, of course, but I remember and recognize it. So it's legible to me as well. And I find that so satisfying to see both of those both of those aesthetic references from the 90s portrayed on stage in those characters. Something that I think is really interesting that feels like it's it's happening lately and your work I think is a big part of it is this kind of Scarborough yes. renaissance. <laughs> I feel like Scarborough is having a moment. Oh I mean, my your work certainly inside of the waltz Scarborough isn't uh, physically on stage, right? We're in Merle, Saskatchewan, but Scarborough takes up a massive amount of psychic space. And when we meet Romeo Alvarez, he's coming directly from Scarborough, and you are from Scarborough, and uh, other writing of yours is set there. And and then we can think of Catherine Hernandez's book, Scarborough, which was then made into a feature film. And Scarborough is really having a moment on the cultural stage right now. What do you make of that? I love it so much. All of us who are from Scarborough are very defensive about Scarborough. I'm sure. Because Scarborough is enormous. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the borders of Scarborough are massive. So it runs from like the beach in... I'm trying to think of what the equivalent may be in the greater Ottawa area. I don't know. I don't even know. Um, Ottawa's not that big. Right. Yeah. Like, it's the size of... I would say it's probably the size of Ottawa. Maybe, yeah. And, like, I I knew Catherine growing up, but also our schools were so far apart. Every intersection is a different subculture. Of course. And so, it's... Like, I was recently... I had recently um, finished The Cottage Guest and we did a reading of it in Banff last month. And it, it was as if I didn't know this, but I just closed my eyes and was like, oh, I write about Scarborough a lot. <laughs> like, a lot. Scarborough, it's it's a trippy place to be at this point in my career mm. to look back at a body of work. Mm-hmm. But my but if anything is part of my body of work, Scarborough is the main character yeah. of my body of work. Yeah. Um and and I love it. The the things that make Scarborough or it's like the lake is part of it. The the amount of time you have to spend on transit. Mm. Like my commute from school to home was an hour or an hour and a half if I was making out with my boyfriend at the bus shelter. <laughs> like, right? like I, or it was like, if I would let the 129 pass mm-hmm. four times, I was going to be late mm-hmm. getting home. And I would, you know, I'd get home after six when I like after rehearsal or something and do homework till 10 and then be up. Like, the commute was just long, yeah. but we all had it. So it was normal. It was normal. 
and also like this the subtext of Scarborough and my school like my particular school was they did a census at that school and it was 63% Filipino wow um that's that's a, I didn't know I was a visible minority till I left Scarborough isn't that that's such a fascinating story maybe we can talk a bit about that because obviously that experience growing up Filipino in Scarborough versus your mom's experience yeah. in Saskatchewan yeah. are drastically at odds yeah. and your writing both inside of this trilogy and outside of it seems to really fluently flip back and forth between or across this urban and rural divide mm. and I wonder if you can talk a bit as a playwright and also as a person of color about what the unique um, experiences or opportunities are as an art maker when you're making art about or for uh, a rural place versus an urban place sure. and for those audiences. Um, I think it has everything to do with my long relationship with the Blythe Festival, mm. full stop. And particularly because I, I grew through it with the young company. There's nothing better than hanging out with a bunch of 12-year-olds, 12, 12 to 19-year-olds, and, and being an outsider mm-hmm. and being curious about their lives. Mm-hmm. To be like, I'm not of this place. You are. Let's make work about where you're from. Yeah. And... To like that's the combination of my love for TYA young people and the Blythe Festival. It culminated in working with the young company mm. to be like I love and respect them for the unique voices that they are, and when you meet them at that level, they are proud of where they're from, mm-hmm. and so I I get to grow up with them, and I get to grow up with an audience at the Blythe Festival, who are proud of who they are, love where they're from, and want people to understand that, they're, that they have a unique identity, unique taste, and demand a quality of storytelling. Yeah. And so this challenge to me is to be like, I've been embedded in this audience, I am this audience. Mm. Over 10 years, I've learned to be this audience. So what am I going to bring them that is both me and them? Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, inherent through everything I've done is nine times out of 10, I am an outsider. And that's a superpower. Mm-hmm. Because the superpower is I get to observe and treat the audience with the respect they require which is more than like there's nothing more offensive I think in any play is just to name drop a place and be like we get you mm-hmm. like it's it's a cheap laugh and it, it tells an audience that you don't know us Yeah, it's a lot of work I'm a long game writer um, and it comes from for that for Prairie Nurse it's like a real um, love. Like you have to love it. You mm-hmm. have to love. You have to want to make people 
love it. I don't know how else to say that. But then the other thing is, with Prairie Nurse, there's cheeky Tagalog in it. Mm -hmm. Like there's another, I don't speak it fluently at all. I remember I had my one of my best friends translate it for me. Two of my best friends translate it for me. And so that was my way of being like cheeky and, a, and an ode to my mom when she would come to see the show. Mm-hmm. Mom will get a laugh. Right. And um, the gift of that, which I never knew would happen, because mm-hmm. honestly, like none of, I don't think any of us write plays in Canada thinking you'll have another life. Like it's just kind of like, <laughs> Like that just, is a sad statement. It's a sad statement, man. Yeah. Like it's another conversation. Yeah. But you're just kind of like, yo, man, I hope I hope more than one audience sees it. I hope, yeah. but this could very well be one and done. Mm-hmm. That's the that's what we sign up for. Mm-hmm. I want to change it. I hope we can change it. But that's a reality. And then and then the incredible privilege and gift of having it come to Toronto. And those Tagalog jokes suddenly hitting. Yeah. Like, that that it went from, like, echo laughter. It was my favorite. Like, you'd have <laughs> big laughter, and then you just hear pockets of laughter. <laughs> so I don't know if it necessarily answers the question of, do I make a distinction of writing for a rural or urban audience? I don't necessarily think so, but what I do know is what I think we have... Um, forgotten about is that we are writing for audience Mm -hmm. like as playwrights that's what distinguishes us yeah that this is not a vacuum we don't write to not affect Mm -hmm. and so this idea that what we write is not in service or sorry the idea that we are writing in service yeah I think that that has gotten lost somewhere. Mm. Um, that that what we do is eventually has to be in communion, and the strength of our storytelling will be benefited if we know who we're writing in communion for. Yeah. And the audience is so specific when you're because of its its live nature, right? Mm versus a book or a journalism right. where the relationship between the writer and the audience is one to one. Exactly. Right? But in the theater it's playwright to a whole group of people a whole group. of you know maybe 60 to 1000 yeah. depending on the size of the theater and and so then you you have opportunities like the echo laughter situation yeah. where a joke hits and then there is a kind of ripple effect yeah, yeah, and yeah. it it takes such a such a deftness of craft to understand i think from sitting alone at one's desk mm-hmm. how to play with an audience mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. so i find that so interesting in that regard that it was when you saw your show in performance mm-hmm. that you understood you were writing a trilogy yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. But like, also, I think that it's a big ask of playwrights to know who the audiences are across Canada. Yes. My end to that is, in the same way my work has expanded and transformed and evolved over the past few years, so is my idea of audience. Mm-hmm. Like, 
that my kid is in the audience is probably the biggest drive now for me because now my kid can sit and watch Prairie Nurse and be like, that's my grandma. Yeah. And my kid will now watch the waltz and be like, sure, that's not mom and dad specifically, but I know that mom, that that character, that that line is dad, Mm -hmm. that that line is mom, that that line is my uncle. They know it. Mm -hmm. And my kid knows that down the line, there's going to be a play about them. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that, is my, that is my ultimate audience member now. I love that. That's who I'm in service for. And if I, can, if I can take that question of service to your child and to the audience and fold that into your discussion about working with the young company at mm-hmm. Blythe, and I know you have... Um, your love for TYA is so apparent and for young artists and young audiences, what advice would you give to young playwrights from where you are now? Rest. Mm. Rest. I find um, overwhelmingly in the past few years where I've been working with young artists, like 100%, the hustle is real. I believe in the hustle. Mm-hmm. But rest is essential. Like, I have watched far too many people burn out, and we are mirroring that Mm -hmm. to the up-and-coming generation. And it's like, that serves no one. Yeah. Because where are your stories if you can't rest? Mm -hmm. Are your stories moving forward going to... Are we going to be in the next generation of stories where just people are talking about how they burnt out. Mm-hmm. Like there's the space to follow and rest and dream. That's what I feel like is missing. Like I've really been like, it's, it's a long game. Yes. You have to live some life. I, I like on, like the, like I said, with the last play, I thought it was dead in the water. Mm-hmm. I had to live some life to go to rest and be like, can I, this is my job. Mm-hmm. I owe it to my child to be healthy and to be able to do my job well, which is to be an archivist of who we are in this ridiculous canon of this ridiculous job I've just chosen to do. Mm. So how can we take it seriously if we don't give ourselves the necessity of rest and reflection? Mm-hmm. That is such a beautiful and generative response. And I, I think that's so accurate because not only is there such a such a drive to just grind all the time but also art doesn't respond to that dude no right no right (laughs) yeah inspiration doesn't strike when you're pushing and you're at capacity or you're over capacity and that's not that's not where new ideas and forms and stories emerge from like the real talk we're at an interesting place in Canadian theater right now Mm -hmm. like post-covid we're in a reckoning yes and so 
how are we going to show up for the reckoning mm-hmm. if we're dead in the water? Like if we're if we have no energy to face it. Yeah, we're art makers. It requires love, passion, curiosity, mm-hmm. care, care. Yeah, and I think that art makers, it's it's our job to create a vision. Yeah. And if we are not envisioning rest as a part of that, then we are doing a disservice to ourselves as yeah. well as our colleagues and the audience. Yeah. Yeah. The next generation of makers. Yeah. Yeah. Please, please, next generation of makers don't make plays about burning out. Like, can you imagine? Ugh. I don't... Uh, yeah, that makes me really sad to think about. No one has the energy to make that play, yeah. even. Okay. Uh, you're collaborating with Nina Liakino yes. on this play. Yeah. You've collaborated with Nina multiple times yeah. now. What do you love about working with Nina? It's a, it's a joy. Like, like... I think it's a very rare, it's very rare to be in this weird job that we do to be able to grow up together. Mm. She directed my very first play. Um, I've been directed by her a few times, and it's so gorgeous to create language together. Yeah, um, I th- that we're like I've been in rooms where we're all Filipino, and that's trippy. It's trippy and great and amazing and out an out of body experience but also home Mm -hmm. like it feels like home and she's family like our kids are besties Mm. um and like it's it's it feels like a homecoming it feels right like with the waltz who else could direct it she's as much as a sucker for romantic comedies (laughs) as i am yeah like a sucker like we the stuff we talk about when it comes to stupid romantic stuff, is great. And what a fun thing to be able to park it in what we love. Mm-hmm. And the, the, just watching her, like how, how fun is it to spend your time being like, what's the moment they fall in love? Mm-hmm. Like those are the conversations we're having. Mm-hmm. That's great considering the very first thing that we ever did together was about a Filipino kid being shot in Scarborough. Yeah. Like that's an evolution. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad to be on this ride with her. It's, I mean, your play is in such good hands with her and it's such a, it's such a beautiful thing to observe the depth of that kind of collaboration mm-hmm. when you have core artists that you trust so deeply, that you've grown up with yeah. and developed as artists alongside, yeah. and you have this kind of shorthand and trust, and it's so beautiful. Yeah, it shouldn't be as rare as as it is. Yeah. Um. So I really take it as a privilege. Yeah. What, Mary Beth? What do you want to write that you have not written? <laughs> like, like sky's the limit kind of question. No budgetary restrictions. Oh, I'm so uh, glad you asked. No thoughts I, on how will this be produced. I am what here for it. What do you want to write? Um, I know, because I'm writing it. Oh, um, fabulous. Well, in addition to the advice of rest, I'd say to young people, I'm trying to take my own advice, which is write what write big. Mm-hmm. Big. Like, screw the idea of a budget. Write big. And so um, I'm doing... 
I'm writing um, a period Twilight Zone-esque radio play Mm -hmm. um, inspired by an Andrew Sisters song. Wow. And I may or may not be writing a prequel to Prairie Nurse. Okay. I've never heard the Andrews Sisters next to Twilight-esque, but that... Twilight Zone-esque. Twilight Zone-esque. Yeah. But that feels very right. Yeah. Like, that to (laughs) me is very exciting because it's like, that's bonkers. Yeah. Like, I will... What? And that's just me following... Like, I I became really obsessed with... um, a serious radio station called 40s Junction mm-hmm. and all they play is the Andrew sisters and it's all it's all um in the vein of 1940s like post-war or World War II right. narrative so it's all like exotifying all of the places that they've con- that the U.S. has conquered Whoa. but this is the, but this is also music that my parents love to sing yeah like that contradiction how can I not that is Delicious. Yeah. It sounds very rich and entertaining. Yeah. Which I feel like is right in the core of something that you do so well, which is to put substantial content on stage <laughs> in a way that feels so fun. Oh, thank you. And I and I know some of your plays are more overtly dramas, mm. um, but certainly with the Prairie trilogy, uh there's such a remarkable and skillful, entertaining Great. sleight of hand. Oh, you know? that's nice. Like the sleight of hand that is good entertainment. Yeah. But the root system below that joy yeah. is these deep and complex stories on stage. That's very kind and of I, you. And I'm just so thrilled and in admiration of that skill that's very kind um if this is the part where i now do a disclaimer (laughs) for anyone expecting that in the cottage guest Mm -hmm. um i'm sorry okay (laughs) (laughs) well i can't wait to read it now that it's oh dear oh dear mary beth thank you so much for spending this time this is so good and our audience has been loving your play and i'm so excited for the show to run on this stage thank you for saying yes thank you for 